Welcome back to Charlottesville Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM. Soundboard also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. If you enjoy Soundboard, we'd really love to hear from you. We have a website, cvillesoundboard.org. That's C-V-I-L-L-E soundboard.org. At the bottom of the homepage, we have a comment form, and we'd really love to do some events with all the listeners of the show, get your feedback, hear what you'd like to hear more about or what you'd like to hear less about, maybe even do a live taping in the future. So leave us a comment. Stop by WTJU sometime for a tour. We'd love to talk to you. This week on Soundboard, we're going to talk a little bit more about a topic Billy brought up last week, early childhood education. As usual, Charlottesville Tomorrow is here to give us the local perspective. There's a lot going on in early childhood education, especially at the state level. So first, one of our production assistants, Sabrina Moore, has put together a little bit of a primer. Here's what you should know about early childhood education across the state. The governor's proposal includes a 50% increase to help at-risk students. A change in economy requires us to think about education in new ways. In the past, we thought of early childhood education merely as babysitting. But today, research shows that learning starts much earlier than we used to believe. The experiences children have in their earliest years lead to lifelong results. As a pediatric neurologist and a parent, I know that learning needs to start earlier. So I've sent you a comprehensive plan for early childhood education. This plan will invest 95 million new dollars to help at-risk three and four-year-olds start learning sooner. They all know if we invest in little learners today, we'll see great results for our adults tomorrow. The goal is to ensure that every child enters kindergarten prepared to succeed, but almost half of children in Virginia arrive without the social, emotional, and other skills they need to thrive because they don't get quality early education. So says Bethany Mott, executive director of the Alliance for Better Child Care Strategies, or ABCs. We need to look at how we can best serve our zero to three-year-olds because we know that 80% of brain development happens before age three. Mott would like to see greater emphasis on the quality of early childhood education, including better pay for highly trained teachers and more funding for economically challenged families to pay for private care. According to UVA's educational psychology professor, Sarah Rim Kaufman, kindergarten requires children to accomplish new academic and interpersonal tasks, which present a new challenge for young children. Early children education emphasizes the development of skills that will help children succeed in this academic environment. How is early childhood education different from daycare or other kinds of childcare? Talking to early childhood education experts, there is not much of a difference. In fact, some experts take issue with the term daycare because it has a negative connotation to it. They argued that anytime a child is sent to a facility to be taken care of, there is an opportunity to learn and help the child with brain development. Today's preschool is more than story time and naps, building blocks and snacks. 
Before heading to kindergarten, 21st century children are expected to know their numbers, letters, and colors, to have mastered certain social skills, and to control their behavior. You know, it's not babysitting anymore, and whether it's an infant, a toddler, a three- or four-year-old, every kid deserves a learning environment that supports them to grow. That's Jenna Conway, Virginia's first chief readiness officer. She says kids who don't know letters or numbers can quickly catch up, but learning appropriate behavior takes time. Hello there, friendly crocodile. May we inspect your perfect smile and count your teeth. One, two, three. Whether they lack academic, social, or behavioral skills, Conway says 40% of Virginia's kids, nearly 30,000 of them, are not ready for kindergarten when the time comes, often because they haven't had access to high-quality preschool. Right now, in the Commonwealth, infant care costs more than in-state tuition. And so parents are scrambling and having to put their kids in unlicensed, unregulated, unsafe settings while they're just trying to keep their job. So she and her team have set out to fix that. We've registered nearly 600 sites and engaged over 3,000 teachers. We got 80% of our teachers responded to a survey explaining some of what their experience is like and how we can better support them. Among other things, she says preschool teachers need guidance. Most of our infant and toddler teachers never receive feedback. We don't actually treat them like professional educators. And so we're going in across 27 jurisdictions, about 20% of the state through this pilot, and making sure that every infant, toddler, three- and four-year-old teacher gets feedback and supports to be the best educator they can be. Conway adds that outreach to parents is also important to assuring children are ready for kindergarten. We have to recognize that our families are our kids' first teachers, and so helping our families understand how do you support the learning. It's not a flashcard, it's not a worksheet, it's about kind of giving kids opportunity to tell stories and engage, reading to kids every single night, even when they're really little and you're not sure that they're understanding it, and constantly talking to your kids. That's because good language skills are key to suitable school behavior. The best way a kid can deal with big emotions is if he or she has the ability to talk about it and explain their feelings. Time will tell whether this new emphasis on early education will make a difference as students make their way through school. But superintendents, school administrators, researchers, and government officials are interested. About 200 of them attended a conference on the subject at UVA, and Virginia has applied for a $37.5 million federal grant to expand its program hoping to support preschools statewide. In Charlottesville, I'm Sandy Hausman. In addition to these state initiatives, it's important to know about some of the federal programs in the early childhood education space. An important one is Head Start. The main federal preschool program in Charlottesville and Albemarle County is the Holly Mead Head Start program, designed to promote academic and social development in three- and four-year-olds from low-income families. The county also promotes programs designed for special education needs. The Early Childhood Special Education Program works for children with diagnosed disabilities, while the Bright Starts Program aims to prevent educational and developmental challenges in at-risk children. In addition, researchers have found that beyond the development of cognitive and literacy skills, enrollment in preschool can help teach emotional and behavioral regulation, which are skills necessary to transition and succeed in K-12 education. You've just heard from our production assistant, Sabrina Moore, as well as from Robbie Harris and Sandy Hausman, reporting for Virginia Public Radio. The clip of Governor Northam is from the 2020 State of the Commonwealth Address, recording by Virginia Public Media. Now let's turn to early childhood education right here at home in Charlottesville and Albemarle. 
As the world is rapidly changing, we've realized that we have to start the learning process at an earlier age. It's not acceptable if we have kids who are getting into first or second grade, and that's when they're just learning how to read when we're competing on a global scale. Today, I'm joined by Charlottesville Tomorrow reporter Billy Jean-Louis and editor Elliot Robinson. So you teased this topic a little bit last week, and now we're going to dig into your article on early childhood education in the area. What do you all remember about your own early childhood education? Who took care of you when you were little? Hmm, I think for me, uh, I went directly to kindergarten. I never asked my parents, you know, what preschool I went to. But I can comment on how my parents prepared my siblings. I remember it was a lot of, like, homeschooling before my siblings went to kindergarten. Back in uh, the oldie days of the 1980s, it wasn't that much of an emphasis of preschool education, but definitely almost every weekend I distinctly recall like, going to a lot of museums and to the library, and then there was just a lot of like push for educational programming. And when I was uh, at home during the week, and then while my parents were at work, I was with my grandmother, and she constantly read the newspaper. She had the morning and the evening paper and also watched the evening news. So there are things in the 80s that are current events that I strongly remember, and no one else said. It's like, well, I, I saw it when it was on TV, or I read that in the paper when I was, like, learning how to read. And now you work in news. <laughs> that sounds like grandma had something to do with that. <laughs> Can you tell me about the early childhood education programs that the city and county schools currently offer? Of course. So the city serves three and four-year-olds and do not offer aftercare for this age group. The county serves four-year-olds but does offer aftercare, and that starts from 3 and ends at like 6 p.m. So we did a recent episode on area median income and how it can determine what sorts of housing support a person or family is eligible for. How does the city and county determine which children are eligible for their early childhood education programs? So it's income-based. In the county, if there's not enough space, that child is then sent to a private setting through a program called Mixed Delivery, which is for parents who are eligible for Virginia Preschool Initiative dollars as well as child care subsidies. So families apply for their children to be in one of these school programs, and if there isn't room in the school programs, then the school can place them in a private child care, early education program, and can provide them with some subsidy and, or some assistance. So how is that program, the Virginia Preschool Initiative, funded? The Virginia Preschool Initiative is mostly known as VPI. It's the state providing dollars for four-year-olds. So the state gives localities money, and then the localities have to come up with the 50% match. And then on a larger scale, the other issue with funding is that it's the mixture of state funds and local funds where you have localities like Charlottesville and Arbemarle that may be able to bring in more resources to have these programs. But if you look at places like in Southwest Virginia or Southside Virginia, where the local funding might not be that great because of the property values or just because of poverty in general, there's just no way that they can pull those resources locally. Does the county plan to expand their early childhood education programs to include more children than they're currently serving? In terms of the county, there are no plans to have like some sort of like centralized preschool center. 
I am aware that in the city, the city wants to expand in terms of like space, and they will do that through the preschool center that they hope to have, which will be housed at Walker Upper Elementary School. And so they'll have more space, but they haven't said yet whether or not they'll include more children in the program. They have not said that, but I do know the governor announced that he plans to include more funding for preschools, including his $95 million uh, request. So it will be up to localities to apply for these dollars. And of course, one of the criteria to uh, receive the dollars will be based on the school division priorities as well as needs. Uh, the announcement of the uh, $95 million, it does sound really great at first, but if you think about how there's more than 130 school divisions in the state, that money isn't going to go very far in the grand scheme of things. There was a rally yesterday about adding more funding for school systems. It was in Charlottesville. Parents came out to the uh, pedestrian overpass on the 250 bypass and had uh, signs that lit up that said, fund our schools. And that's definitely something that the state needs to look into. So in your article, you report that in Charlottesville, 52% of the students are economically disadvantaged and are on free or reduced price lunch. And nearly 83% of students of color who qualify for free or reduced price lunch live in subsidized housing, according to the division. What should we know about the connections between socioeconomic status, education, and housing in Charlottesville? Of course. So preschools are expensive. It's the same as first year tuition in college. That's why experts argue that the government should do a better job at funding preschools. You have to think that some of these uh, parents who are in these uh, disadvantaged situations, they're thinking about so many things, how they're going to get to work, if they're making enough money, so there's a, a meal at the end of the day. So trying to figure out how much money they would need to set aside for early education, that's not high on your list if there was a way that, just like with public schools, if there's something already in place that they can take their child to that they know that it's of good quality and will help level that playing field, that would be the best scenario for them. Why do you think the state is stepping in now? So they say that one way to close the achievement gap is to help children at an early age. For instance, reading. If you can help the child read, then it will help them as they get to kindergarten. Then there's still that disparity of If you have the means, you're getting your child taught these things at a younger age. So you have kids that, from the beginning of public school, who are well advanced as some of their other classmates. So, And that's not fair to a a child that if you're at four or five years old and there's already a wide achievement cap that you're going to try to spend the next 12 years of your life to close. Yeah. And then a way to rectify the problem is to help those who do not have the opportunity to send their children to a high-quality early childhood program. All right, let's end this segment like we do every week by asking the folks at Charlottesville Tomorrow, what's on your calendar this week? On Tuesday, I have another story on early childhood education. So it will explore some of the things that parents should look into as they're signing up their children mm. to a preschool center. Um, you know, what are talking, some of those things? 
Well, Mary, you would have to wait uh, when that story comes out. Uh, I'm so happy that you're excited about it. But, um, you know, all these questions will be answered uh, in my next piece. It's imperative that we educate parents for things that they should look into as they're sending their children to a preschool center. I know in talking to one teacher at the county schools, she mentioned something along the lines that her school is a very diverse school and she teaches her students not only in English, but she incorporates Spanish in it. So I'm just teasing the story right now, but that's one of the things. We've learned in doing the research that early education is a very dense, complicated issue, and that's why we're breaking it down into multiple stories to not throw everything at people at once, as we really feel that it's important that parents understand what's going on and what's best for their child. One thing that we're going to be working on, the reporters and I, we're going to create a video for Black History Month. We're going to be talking about how there were black leaders in the past and also people who are in the present who have greatly influenced what we write and drives our coverage. When is that coming out? We're going to start recording it on Friday, so after that it will be in the hands of the, the person who will be doing the video for us, but he does a really quick turnaround, so hopefully before the middle of the month it will be ready to go. Thank you all so much for coming in today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Billy Jean-Louis is a reporter covering education for Charlottesville Tomorrow. Elliot Robinson is the editor. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the University of Virginia. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. In our second segment, we're going to hear a little bit more from Sabrina Moore. She recently produced a feature looking at the history and current music scene on the corner. That's University Avenue alongside the university. The Virginian, Coupdevilles, and then there was the Mineshaft, Mike's Bistro. Satellite Ballroom. And then you had Max and Tracks. Max Tracks, yeah, absolutely. Major bands played there. You know, Dave Matthews Band, Dead Kennedys, Butthole Surfers. Steppenwolf, 38 Special. The list is so long that I almost can't remember. The Corner, a collection of shops stretching along West Main Street, was once home to a diverse chain of live music venues during the 1980s and 1990s. This era produced several nationally recognized artists that made their start playing at local bars and fraternities. As venues propelled rock bands into fame, the music scene was transformed by the digital age into how it exists today. This is that story. Aaron O'Hare, arts producer at SIVA Weekly. It was a space for people who love music to go. You could hear music in these places, you could buy music, you could talk about music, you could meet other people who love music. Tim Snyder, WTJU Opera DJ. More of a rock orientation than a jazz orientation that I was familiar with, but nonetheless, it was very active. You could count on it being loud. Sometimes it got a little bit rowdy. A lot of students, of course, but not exclusively so. You had a few old guys like me. 
and it was a lot of fun. Rock bands were at the forefront of the music scene, but folk, bluegrass, and jazz weren't difficult to find on the corner. You didn't have the same thing where you had a house band, you know, basically all the time or a couple of times a week. They would have different, different bands playing there, some better than others, but the place was usually very, very crowded. The prevalence of music on the corner nurtured a regular following. Six nights a week, crowds can navigate five or more gigs in one evening, looking to listen to a certain sound or socialize with kindred spirits. Erin O'Hare. I think that all of these places on the corner, they become a gathering place for like-minded people to find their friends when maybe they don't fit into mainstream culture or society. It's kind of like, like the island of misfit toys, which always seemed like a fun place to be which I think maybe a lot of people wouldn't expect because the corner is so, like, UVA, at least now. And there's, like, always been kind of a divide between the university and the town. But from what I gather, maybe in the 90s and early 2000s, the corner had more town activity because of those places that I mentioned. Today, most of these venues no longer exist. Coupe de Ville's and Crozet Pizza at Buddha's Biker Bar are the only remnants of the once vibrant live music entertainment. There was more music on the corner before. What happened? Maybe live music doesn't have as much appeal to people now as it did then. I don't know. It just seemed like there was an awful lot more live music around um, than, uh, than there is now. And I think part of it is driven by demand, and part of it is just availability of space. Rich Tarbell, musician and author of Regarding Charlottesville Music. You know, I don't know that anybody locally draws every week that number of people. That's the difference. The audience isn't there. I think part of the change from that era is also, you got to realize, back then we had one TV station, we had one movie theater. We didn't have sixplexes and Stonefield and all that stuff. We had limited entertainment choices. Ivan Orr, jazz musician and music educator. You know, I think at the height, I, I really feel like, you know, it was the kind of thing where you could pop into two, three or four places and catch people doing music, which I don't think that exists. Or if it does, it's very different. The th social thing to do was to meet up at a bar to go see this band or that band, and if you want, you can move to the next bar and do the same thing. You didn't have the internet. You can't stay home and talk to your friends. You actually had to go out and talk to your friends. Ask folks who grew up uh, here or, you know, who have lived here for a while, they would definitely say, like, I don't go to the corner. It's just for students. I think it's just harder for them to draw the audience with so much other stuff. You have. YouTube and different things like that, it's just, it's, it's a harder connection to be made. Tim Snyder. We live in an entirely different electronic culture. The availability of streaming services didn't exist then. So in a lot of cases, if you, if you, want, to, you don't want to hear music, well, that was a way to do it. You heard it live. Aidan Thies, UVA student and bass player for Bag Theory. It, it's a funny thing because if you don't have any networking, then that monetary compensation for the show isn't even a factor. Because if you don't have a network or you don't have people to connect you to venues, then you won't get that show and you won't get the money that would be paid. Jimmy Lord, UVA student and member of the rock band Cougar Beatrice. Because it, it is like a cost-benefit analysis for the, the, you know, the business owners. So like they have to hire a band to come in. 
The closing of tracks in the year 2000 was the beginning of a gradual decrease in corner venues. Places that sold themselves as having live music couldn't stay in business as the corner real estate became more valuable and space became more limited. Max and Tracks was replaced with the UVA hospital system. In place of Satellite Ballroom now sits CVS. The venues of this golden age of music are only memories. But live music has survived on the corner. While the scene is quieter in comparison to how it was two decades ago, it is still a formative experience for the growth of young musicians. Current music scene is actually pretty vibrant and has a lot of input from the students themselves. I see a lot of talented young musicians playing on the corner. Jordan Brunk, former member of the metal band Corsair and current owner of Crozet Pizza at Buddhist Biker Bar. Ivan Orr. Met lots of wonderful uh, young people here in Charleston, many of many who are still uh, writing and performing to this day. For me to be able to see that, you know, I think a lot of times they say the reward for education or whatever comes later at this age, <laughs> starting to see, uh, you know, see, see a lot of that work come to fruition. Considering the amount of people on the corner on Friday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, I, I think it's a great place to have people get to know you. And I, I, think, I think the opportunities are really only up. Jordan Brunk. You get more familiar with the equipment, but you also get familiar with the crowd itself and how to interact with the crowd and how to make a better show for yourself and for the audience. It's a good, a good setting to work out the kinks as a band. There's interest for the venues on the corner to book bands because people, one, do like to see bands. And two, the members of the bands, often enough, are your peers if you go to UVA. So it's very cool to see your friends on stage as well. Bars recognize this. Jimmy Lord. Yeah, I would really love for, for there to be like I don't know, just more people involved in the music scene, like more bands. Uh, there are like a, you know, a good, decent amount of bands at UVA, I think, that are doing some good stuff. Just like the more the merrier. The relationships and the friendships that are built based upon, you know, you have folks from near and far, obviously, and then you have local folks, and a lot of times, you know, that's where they would meet and, and form, you know, musical partnerships all centered around music. that does it for this week's edition of Charlottesville Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. Again, a reminder to tell a couple friends about the show. My name is Mary Garner McGee. Production assistance this week by Sabrina Moore. Also thanks to Virginia Public Media and the Virginia Public Radio's Robbie Harris and Sandy Hausman. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Marin Alasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us and leave us a note at cvillesoundboard.org.